Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being with us today. So I've got a word for all the men, specifically for all the husbands. After our service last week, I have heard from wives at our church celebrating the fact all week long that their husbands are making the beds, that their husbands are putting the pillows on the bed, that their husbands are vacuuming. And listen, guys, if we don't stand together, it's possible we could be taken advantage of apart. So I went to vacuum um, this week, which I do occasionally um, at, at our home. When I said that at the 830 service, Danielle literally responded as if someone would say amen, but she responded, oh, please, um, loud enough for everyone to hear. So I was like, okay, not occasionally, but I have vacuumed before. And this week I decided to vacuum again. And as I'm getting out the vacuum to kind of do the stuff, she says, you know, when I have lots of time, I actually try to like clean the hardwood floors and wipe down the baseboards. And I said, hang on, time out. Um, I said, listen. When you put the JV on the field, you don't run the varsity plays. Um, so, like, I appreciate, I appreciate how you clean the house, um, but I'm going to vacuum carpet. And when I'm done vacuuming carpet, I'm hoping you'll be grateful. But, like, all that other stuff, I don't even know what that means. So, like, listen, guys, if we don't hang together, we are going to hang apart. Um, so, like, let's stick together in serving our wives without them taking advantage of us for doing nothing the last 20 or 25 years. Um, hey, if you have your Bibles, we're in First John chapter 5 today. 1 John 5, if you didn't bring a Bible, don't worry about it. Uh, all the words that I read will be on the screen behind me. It'll be super easy for you to follow along. You can take your notes out of the bulletin or fire up your app. If you're watching online, it should be pretty simple for you to follow along as well. Starting a brand new series today called Blessed Assurance. One of my favorite hymns of all time is a hymn called Blessed Assurance. Some of you were singing that kind of in your head as that organ was playing it in that video that was just on. And we're going to spend the next seven weeks trying to answer this question, how can I know for sure that I'm a Christian? How can I know for sure that I'm a Christian? Um, so I knew I had answered incorrectly by the look on my professor's face when he asked me the question, um, when did you get saved? The question to me in seminary was, Christian, when did you get saved? My answer to him was, which time? And I could tell by the way he looked at me that was the wrong theological answer. But that was my answer. If he, if he would have asked me, when did you become a Christian? I would have said when I was six years old at a revival at our church, I came forward from the back row. But because he said, when did you get saved? My reality is this. I had a heart that always wanted to be close to Jesus, but a life that did nothing to be close to Jesus. I had a heart that wanted to be forgiven of sin, but hands that committed a lot of sin. And I had a heart that did not want to go to hell um, but a life that kind of lived like hell on earth. So honestly, every time salvation was offered to me, I took it again just in case. And I know I'm not the only one in the room who spiritual story kind of goes like that. I wanted to be sure always that I was saved because I was pretty sure always that I lived like I was lost. And what my seminary professor helped me understand is he said, Christian, we need to spend some time helping you understand what the Bible says about salvation and how you get saved. And then we need to spend some time giving you the assurance of God's love in your life. And we spent an entire semester meeting after class, talking his, in his office about things that I'm going to try to give you the next seven weeks out of 1 John. My main two takeaways were this. He said, Christian, you have to get this nailed down in your life for two reasons. He said, one, constantly fearing that you will lose your salvation will never allow you to really be close to Jesus. Just like constantly fearing your dad's going to walk out, just like constantly fearing your spouse is going to leave you, any relationship based on fear, motivated by fear, held together by fear, is not a relationship you want to be. It's just not healthy. And that's how you look at Jesus right now. You are scared to death you're going to do something to make him walk out on you. So we got to get this nailed down in your life so you can be close to Jesus and receive his love. The second thing I learned was this. The phrase, once saved, always saved, while theologically accurate, is one of the most practically dangerous phrases in the church. Because it tells someone, if you prayed that prayer, don't worry about anything else. And it leads a lot of people to kind of commit a portion of their past and future to Jesus without really giving their full heart to Jesus. And it leads a lot of people to think that they are saved. They're Christians who are not. And as a matter of fact, Jesus couldn't have said more clearly in Matthew chapter 7, one of the great surprises that people will have in eternity is there will be a lot of people who think that they're saved who aren't. They prayed. 
They even went to church every now and then. But they never gave their heart to Jesus. I don't say that to scare you, just to say that there are people like that who prayed and who are kind of living on that prayer, but they never really connected their heart to Jesus. So because we had an event like we had last week, and probably if Adrian came back and preached that exact same message, most of the exact same people would make the exact same commitment today, it shows a little bit of a theological gap. It shows a little bit of an intimacy gap with how we walk with Jesus. We're going to spend the next seven weeks trying to answer this question, like how can I be sure that I'm a Christian so that I can receive everything Jesus has for me, not live in fear, and so that I can have some evidences in my life that the Bible says if I'm a Christian, your life will look like this, so I can absolutely know for sure. That's the goal of this series. Um, And John is going to help us with that. Four men wrote narratives about the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We find them in our Bible at the front of the New Testament. They're called the Gospels. That's a word that means good news. John is the only one who, at the very end of his book, summarized his entire book with one sentence. And in John chapter 20, verse 31, John said, These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so that by believing in him you might have life in his name. John writes 20 chapters worth of information about the life and ministry of Jesus, but says, here's the whole reason I wrote the book of John. So you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and you would come to life spiritually by believing in him. That's the goal of this entire book. Later, John would write a shorter book that's in the back of our Bible, 1 John. And because he's a brilliant author, he would do the exact same thing. He'd get to the last chapter and he would summarize his entire book with one verse. And this would be the verse, 1 John 5, 13. He gets to the end of his second book and he says, I write these things. That is the book of 1 John. So that you who believe in the name of the Son of God. To, I, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know, circle the word know, that you have eternal life. John said, I wrote my first book so that you might know Jesus is the Messiah and so that you could become a Christian. I wrote my second book so that those of you who have become Christians can know for sure that you are Christians. And this book is filled with statements like this. Here's how you can know f- for sure. If you're walking with Jesus and here's how you can know for sure if you're not walking with Jesus in the next seven weeks We'll try to study this book together so that those of you who want to be Jesus followers and believe you're Jesus followers can know for sure That you are Jesus followers If you're in the room today and you're not a Christian and you have a skeptical view of Christians that don't look like Jesus This will be a great seven weeks for you because I will show you how you can take your Bible And go talk to your Christian friends and say, the Bible says a Christian does these things and I don't see them in your life. So even if you're here as a skeptical non-Christian, I think this series could help you help the people in your life who are calling themselves Christians who don't live like Jesus at all. So those will be our goals over the next seven weeks to know that you're really a Christian. Before we jump into today's Bible study and kind of summarize this series and salvation Talk about salvation being more than a prayer. We want to pray and just ask God to kind of help your heart uh, and your head receive what we're going to say. So would you bow your heads with me here and online? Take a deep breath to kind of settle your soul into this moment. And ask God to speak to your heart and tell him you'll be listening. This has to be the point in the service where you stop listening to what I'm saying and you begin to try to hear from the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit in me, Holy Spirit in the Word of God, Holy Spirit in the people of God, Holy Spirit from heaven, communicate directly from heaven to the hearts of your people what you need them to hear through my preaching and teaching from your Holy Word. Help us to see really clearly what authentic Christianity looks like so we can live in the intimacy of love with Jesus so so that we can live with clarity and understanding our salvation. That's our prayer. And God, we ask it today in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So if you're taking notes, here's the first thing you're going to learn in this series as we talk about authentic Christianity. Um, Salvation is much more a posture than a prayer. Salvation is much more a posture that we take than a prayer that we say. If you were to ask me, Christian, is salvation a decision that we make or an action that we take? I would say, yes, yes. Salvation is a decision that we make that requires an action that we take. Salvation is both. You don't work for it, but the decision for salvation, according to Jesus, will come with some action that will help prove that to you. In Mark 8, 34 and 35, 
Jesus gives what I believe is both his simplest and his strongest call to people who might want to become followers of Jesus. And he says what we need to do is make a decision that will lead to some action, and the action will show if we've made the decision. It says in Mark 8, 34, Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with the disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must say a prayer. That's not what he said. He said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must make a decision that moves them. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So is salvation a decision or an action? It's, it's both. It's a decision that requires action, and it's a decision that is proven by the actions that we take. It's a decision you can tell somebody means by the action that they take afterwards. So, my, like, my favorite season of the year is fall. Uh, I love everything about the fall as a Midwestern kid growing up in southern Ohio. Um, I love the color of the changing leaves. Um, I love the crisp, cool air. I love walking outside and being able to see your breath. I love wearing a hooded sweatshirt. I love the smell of a fire pit. Somebody last night had a fire pit going in my neighborhood. We had our windows open. You could smell it like I love fall. But the reason I love fall the most is because I love college football. Uh, I love college football more than anything else that I like watching on TV throughout the course of the year. Saturday morning at 8 a.m., I am in my chair turning on college game day, and Saturday night around 8 p.m., I get out of that exact same chair where I have not moved except to maybe use the bathroom. Usually, Danielle and Casey will just bring me food and water so I can make it through the entire day. About 8 p.m., I'll get up and go to bed and get ready for church on Sunday. I love college football. Um, and if you were to come into my house while I was watching a really good game and say, Christian, the house is on fire. It's going to burn down. Um, do you, do you think you should leave? My decision would be yes. My action would determine, would be determined by who was playing, what the score was at the minute. Um, and if I sat in a house that burned down on top of me and burned it up with me in it, you would not say that I had made the decision to leave if the house was on fire, even though I said I would. You would say, you said you were going to leave the house, but you never left the house. There are a lot of people who said they were going to follow Jesus who never followed Jesus. They prayed a prayer, but the posture of their life never tipped towards Jesus. And you can tell if somebody is a Jesus follower or not by the posture of their life. And I would say it this way, the initial posture, but then the ongoing posture of true salvation is two things. First, it's denial. You must deny yourself. So the initial, like you you don't even determine to pray a prayer unless you determine initially to realize that you need Jesus. So it's the initial posture. I need some help from God. But it becomes the ongoing posture of denial of my sin and denial of myself through repentance. Repentance means I used to do things one way and I stopped and I'm heading the exact opposite way now. So the ongoing posture of Christianity is I like some sin in my life, but because I'm a Jesus follower, anytime I, anytime I bump into sin, I go the other way. And there are some ways I'd like to live my life. There are some things I'd like to pursue in life. But every time I realize I'm living for myself, I stop and I repent. It's this ongoing, everyday repentance that says, here's sin, nope. Here's self, nope. It is a posture that continually runs to Jesus. I want to give you a verse and a picture that I think will show it to you even better than the statement you just wrote down. The book of Job ends with a verse that I believe is the posture of people who genuinely are Jesus followers. If you've not heard anything about the book of Job, he was a righteous man who it seemed like was cursed in a season of his life to have everything go wrong. And the book of Job is 42 chapters of Job asking God really good questions and arguing with God about how life was not fair. So much good stuff in Job. And then in the last few chapters, God answers him and it like pins his ears to the back of his head because God comes at him strong. And Job ends the book in Job 42 verses 5 and 6 by saying this, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you and I despise myself. So I repent in dust and ashes. The clearest picture of the posture of salvation is that when you truly see God, you truly see your sin, and you despise who you are without God. 
You can tell who will forever walk with Jesus and those who will walk with Jesus for a time based on those who have seen their sin and those who have not. Job said, when I clearly saw God, I clearly saw myself. And when I clearly saw myself, all I saw was my sin and my selfishness. And God, I am so sorry. You'll know that you have the posture of a Christian when every time you think about God, you think about how far short you have fallen and how much you need him. That, that's the posture of denial and repentance. Let me show you like a, maybe a real world issue. I read a story um, a couple years ago about a vet who called a man who said, I've just finished reviewing your dog's scans um, and we're going to have to put him down. And for those of you like me who have had to put your dog down, horrible, horrible thing. He said, you don't have to come here to do it. Uh, I'll come there to do it if you want it. And the guy said, yeah, I want you to come to my house. And he took his shovel into the backyard and began to dig a hole that he would bury his dog in that the vet was going to come and put down. And the dog went out in the backyard and watched him. I've got pictures that this family took of the dog watching his dad dig his grave. The, the second picture is the most heartbreaking. Go to the second picture, Bailey, if you would, because it, it shows the dog just looking at this hole like, hey, what are you doing with this big hole? I don't know that there's a better picture in, your world, when you're in the world to visualize of the true posture of salvation than this dog looking at this grave. The posture of Christians is everything in life without Jesus leads to death. Anytime I consider what I want to do instead of what God wants to say, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Anytime I consider the short-term pleasures of sin might feel good for a night, but in the end it leads to death. Like the posture of Christianity is everything in life is going to lead to this hole in the ground unless God steps in. That's the posture of genuine salvation. It's why we cling so tightly to Jesus because the only other option is the grave. By the way, in this story, the vet showed up at the house, realized he had the wrong dog, and told the guy, my bad, this dog's going to be okay. So this dog's actually okay. Now, had the vet done that to us, the vet would have been in the hole. The shovel would have been over his head. Vet in the hole, dirt on top of him, tap the cross in where the vet lies now, like RIP. Uh, like, so this dog's okay. But what a great picture this dog gives us. The posture of a Jesus follower is everything in life leads to the grave without Jesus. So I cling tightly to him. Last week I had the chance to talk with Adrian afterwards just about the service and the invitation and everything. And he said, Christian, after 30 years, I've realized the gift of evangelism, the Holy Spirit gift of evangelism, is not convincing people to be saved. It's convincing people that they're lost. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can convince someone they're saved. The gift of evangelism is being able to convince people that they're lost because once they're convinced they're lost, they don't have to be convinced to be saved. They'll ask, how do I do it? We see evidence of this in Acts chapter 16. Paul and his friend Silas had started a church in a city called Philippi. They'd had a tremendous revival that apparently two Philippian jailers had never cared to come to because they didn't need the new Christian faith that was in their town. But then there was an earthquake at the jail and they thought everyone in jail was going to be, that was going to escape and they thought they were going to be killed and facing their death, dog looking in the tomb, facing their death, they went to Paul and Silas and they said in Acts 16, 30, sirs, what must we do to be saved? See, when you realize that the only alternative to salvation is death, you lean heavily into salvation. Not a prayer that you pray, it's literally, it's a mindset that you have your entire life life. The other part of this mindset after you deny self would be that you live with this dependence on Jesus. You live with the dependence on the work that Jesus has done. You live with the dependence on the righteousness that Jesus has. You, you, you see all of life as a grave without Jesus and you think, God, your standard, I can never meet your standards. And we think that's okay because as a Christian, you depend on Jesus to meet your standards. And you think, God, I don't want to be punished for my sin. And you think that's okay. Because as a Christian, Jesus is punished for your sin. Like, you learn to have this posture where literally every moment of every day, you're reliant on Jesus to be standing with God in a good standing. I think Romans 4 or 5 maybe puts it the best. If you think about what belief in Jesus looks like, Romans 4, 5 says, here's what salvation really looks like. 
It says salvation, Romans 4 or 5, is given to the one who does not work. It's not something we can do. But we trust God who justifies the ungodly. What is that? That's a judicial term, which means he has punished to the fullest extent ungodliness. And their faith is credited as righteousness. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. What does that mean? That means the posture of salvation is this. I can't do anything to earn God's favor and forgiveness. I can't be good enough to earn God's reward. So I put my belief in Jesus who died on the cross so my sins wouldn't have to be punished. I put my, my belief in Jesus who lived a perfect life because I couldn't. I put my whole belief in the finished work of Jesus. That allows me to be loved by God and one day be with God eternally. Jesus. He's the only thing that does it. The Hebrew word belief is literally a picture of a chair that you sit down in. The word belief means to put your full weight into So the posture of Christians is every day, all day, I'm relying on Jesus to make me good enough for God. Not my Bible reading, not my prayer, not my tithing, not my serving. Like if I'm good with God, it's because of Jesus. And if my sin needs to be punished, well, Jesus will do that too. It's only because of Jesus. Jesus is the one who connects us to God. Turn to somebody you came with and say, Jesus connects us to God. That's the posture of Christianity. Not that I prayed a prayer in my past, but that I have put my faith in Jesus and he lives to connect me to God. So salvation is more a posture than a prayer, although it begins with a prayer. Salvation number two is a person, not just a prayer. And the person's name is Jesus. And I think this point is going to be where most of us get tripped up. This point is, is why most of you last week We're moving towards Jesus to recommit your life spiritually because salvation is far more relationship with a person than a religious prayer that you pray. So in John chapter 17, we read what I call the real Lord's prayer. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us a model prayer and he's like, Christians should pray this prayer. But if you want to hear the prayer Jesus prayed in John 17 in the garden of Gethsemane, we have that prayer recorded. So like we actually read Jesus prayer And in John 17, 3, he defines salvation as knowing him. John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus said, here is eternal life, here is salvation, that people know God. And they know God by knowing Jesus. We know God by knowing Jesus. The word know in the Greek language is an interesting word. It's the word gnosko. It literally means to come to know of or to be fully aware of or to fully understand or to fully recognize through intimate shared experiences. It is the word in the Greek language that describes how a husband and a wife know each other once they've been intimate sexually. It literally is a knowledge that only comes through being very, very close to each other. And I think probably one of the biggest gaps in people who have prayed a prayer asking God to forgive them, who want to go to heaven one day, is that they don't live very, very closely to Jesus. They don't walk closely with Jesus, so they don't really know Jesus intimately because they've not had these experiences with him. You need to understand, Jesus is not a fact that you learn. He's a person you experience. And when you have a really good day and you share that with Jesus, you learn something about him and you that you never knew before. And when you, really, when you have a really bad day, you share that with Jesus, you learn something about him and you you never knew before. And when you have friends who have really good days and it makes you feel a little jealous and you share that with Jesus, it teaches you something about him and you that you never really knew before. And when you have friends who have really bad days and it makes them question your faith in Jesus and you share that with Jesus, it helps you learn something about him and you you never knew before. See, salvation is not just a prayer you say. It's a person that you bring into every intimate detail of your life who helps you get to know them by getting to know yourself by processing everything that's happening in your life. I love what Pastor Tim Keller says. Spiritual knowledge is not what we learn through experience. It's what we learn by meditating upon our experience. We don't learn through what happened to us. We learn by processing what happened to us and finding out what that teaches us about ourselves and about Jesus. 
And I've got to be honest with you, most Christians do not do this very well. It's why when authentic Christianity is presented to people as a present relationship rather than a past religious experience, our faith is challenged. So when Adrian says, here's how you know you're a Christian, like you're really leaning into God, living for God, you think, I said a prayer, but I'm actually not really living for God or leaning into God. We have too many people who their faith experience is connected to a memory or a man rather than the Messiah. Why are you a Christian? Well, when I was 13, I prayed at camp. Okay, that's not actually how the Bible says you answer that question. Or we place all of our Christianity on the guy on the stage or some Christians around us, and as long as they're good, we're good. But if they're not good, we're, like, we're not good either. And you know what happens when one sheep runs off a cliff? Usually the other sheep run off the cliff. I read an article at the end of September that one of our safety team members, Eric, I think you actually sent this to me, 143 sheep in Idaho that were cornered by two wolves. So they ran into a ravine, all fell down the ravine on top of each other, and they all suffocated and died. A farmer lost 143 sheep in a moment. The wolves didn't get any of them. They just convinced one to jump off the cliff, so the rest followed. Welcome to the world of sheep. If you look closely, you're going to realize that I have wool, not skin. I'm a sheep, not a shepherd. I say, bah, like you. I don't, like, I don't carry a stick. There are too many people who their faith is connected to the guy on the stage. And if, and if they like him, and if he preaches good, and if they know him, and they can text back and forth, and they can have lunch once a month, like, as long as they and the man are good, their faith is good. But when the man goes bad, and most of them do because we're human, faith goes bad. Well, you're, you're anchored to the wrong man. The only man you should be anchored to is Jesus. The only man I should be anchored to is Jesus. Like, I'll try the best I can as a, shep- as a sheep to try to figure out how to shepherd But when all the sheep start jumping off the cliff, we don't look at our small group and say, are you jumping too? We find the shepherd and say, should we go or like, should we do that or not do that? And too many people, when they're challenged that authentic Christianity is an everyday relationship, not a memory in your past or some man or woman who's been in your life, we think, I don't have modern day Christianity right now. So we get, so we get saved again. We make a decision again. We want it. We just haven't really pursued it very far. And here's, here's how I like to say this. Most people don't consciously leave their faith. But they leave Jesus behind so often they feel like they lost their faith when they're presented with authentic Christianity. When authentic Christianity is you walk with Jesus every day. Most people have not consciously said they want to walk away from Christianity. But they cannot remember the last day they spent with Jesus. And because they lost him, they wonder if they still have their faith. If faith is Jesus, and the last time I spent an hour with Jesus was in sixth grade at youth camp in the woods, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not a Christian anymore. And we're challenged by what real Christianity is. I'll be honest, I went back and listened to both of Adrian's messages twice this week to make sure I heard correctly what he said first chair Christianity was that so many people needed to step into. And all he said it was, was people who loved Jesus, read their Bibles, took notes, prayed, didn't complain, and like sang whatever songs the band played. That was his list. He didn't say tithe. He didn't say serve in the community. He didn't say go on a mission trip. Like he said the most basic components of Christianity, read your Bible, take notes, fall in love with Jesus, Make Jesus a priority of your life. And the vast majority of Christians said, if that's Christianity, I don't do that. Jesus is not my priority and he's not my person. I mean, I love him and I ask him to forgive. I've got a prayer in my past. I've got hope in my future. But he's not my priority every day. Thank you for being honest. I had six different people in six different conversations say the same thing to me. It was the most crazy thing that I've ever experienced. They all basically said, Christian, I'm in chair 1.5. Separate of each other. So what do you mean by that? Well, it's really, really clear that like Jesus is not my person. He's not my priority every day. But I don't really think I'm the puke seat. Like when he starts slamming that together and threw that down, like I'm not that either. I'm kind of right in between there. And I thought, that wasn't an option that he gave. He was, that wasn't an option that he gave. There wasn't a one point, there wasn't a 1.5 chair. 
What they're basically saying is, I want to be able to say Jesus is my everything without spending any time with the person. I'd like to be able to feel good about my faith commitment without making Jesus my priority. Can't I sit like right between a puke Christian and a priority Christian? And Jesus is like, like, no, to know God is to know me. And to know me is share life with me. That's the only way we get to know who God really is. So man, so many of us get distracted. C.S. Lewis, a great writer on things of the faith, said, we have to remember it's not Satan's goal for us to worship Satan. It's just Satan's goal for us to worship anything besides Jesus. Satan's end goal is not that we would worship him. It's just that we would put anything but Jesus in the first chair. That's good enough for him. So salvation is a person, and it's a relationship with a person. And when you're challenged that salvation means you're sitting right next to Jesus, at some point you look over and he's right there and you think, okay, I'm good. I read my Bible this week, and I prayed this week, and I spent time with this man this week, and I think about this man this week, and when I'm challenged, I constantly deny myself. Like, salvation is a person, not just a prayer. So we have to hang on to that. We have to remember that. And we do that by realizing, number three, that salvation is way more about proximity to Jesus than it is a prayer to Jesus. It's way more about proximity to Jesus than it is a prayer to Jesus. Christianity is staying close to Jesus. The time that it changed me, say, Christian, when did you quit getting saved? Theologically bad question. I think I probably got saved when I was six and had to continue to mature. You say, when did I quit being, af- when did I quit being afraid that I wasn't saved? When I finally started walking every day with Jesus. I'd hear a message like that and I would hear kind of mature Christianity presented pretty simply as someone who walks with Jesus. And I thought, I do that. If that's what salvation is, like, having Jesus be the most important thing in your life and spending time with him, I do that. Like, if that's all I need to do to not be afraid to go to hell anymore, I do that. Like, when I started doing that, I wasn't afraid anymore. I had assurance because I had a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus said a relationship with him is what Christianity is all about. Look at what he says in John 17, 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. By the way, this is pretty cool. This is the place in the Bible where Jesus prays for you. John 17, he'd been praying for his disciples, and then he transitions to praying for anybody who would become a Christian after the disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those. Circle the word those and write your name in the Bible, because this is where Jesus prayed for you. Right here, this prayer is for you. Jesus is praying for everyone who will ever become a Christian. He's praying for you right here. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. What's his prayer? That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. There's the word believe again. What's interesting, it's the exact same word, gnosko. Jesus said, the world will believe that I have come, not because they learn about faith, but because they meet a Christian. And when they have life experience with a Christian, then they'll believe in Jesus. Is that true of your story? See, not only are we not gnoscoing Jesus, living every minute of our day experiencing him, because we don't gnosco him, nobody gnoscoes us. They don't meet Jesus through us because Jesus isn't something we kind of live all day, every day. Powerful analogies in John chapter 17. But Jesus' prayer was pretty simple. He prayed that we'd stay close. And here's what you need to understand. Salvation is a present spiritual reality. It is. But it's also a future spiritual promise that we're constantly moving towards. So you are forgiven, you are saved, you are sealed. The moment that you deny yourself and repent, the moment you begin to depend on Jesus and his work for you, at that moment you are saved, sealed, delivered, like it is biblical truth that your name is then written in the Lamb's book of life, and there are all kinds of evidences over the course of your life that will show you that you still have Jesus and his Holy Spirit in your life. We'll talk about them in the next six weeks. But salvation is also like a future promise. Because we are spiritually saved, but right now none of us are living in heaven with Jesus. So it's like this thing we did that we haven't really like cashed in on totally yet. We're still waiting. And in the waiting, Jesus says, you have to stay really, really close to me. It's a present spiritual reality. It's also a future spiritual reality. And it's one that we're constantly supposed to be moving towards unless we aren't. And when we aren't, And someone gets on stage and says, if you're really a Jesus follower, here's what you'd be doing. The Holy Spirit inside of us says, you're right. And we come forward again and again and again and again and again. Why? Because we're supposed to stay close to Jesus. Look at his words in John 15, 4. He's teaching his disciples about the Holy Spirit. 
about staying close to him. And he says to his disciples in John 15, 4, remain in me. Proximity. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus says, like, if you're not close to me, you'll never live the Christian life that will convince you you're a Christian. You got to stay close to me. It comes from me. You got to be close to me. So if you worked with someone every day who talked about their spouse, told you they were married, um, but you never really saw any pictures of them, you never met them at like the Christmas party, they never had to like leave early, there were no emergencies, someone would talk to you like, constantly talk to you about somebody they were married to, but you never met them, and you said, man, tell me the story, you keep telling me about your wife, but like I've never met her, and they were like, well, um, somebody reached out over email, we connected a few times, and I asked them if they would like to marry me, I proposed, would you like to be together forever, and they said yes, Um, and then on the wedding day, they showed up, and we had a ceremony together where we sealed that. And now, now we hope to be together forever when we're dead. You would be like, oh, no. Um, you got tricked. Did she have a Russian accent? I don't even think she's real. Like, you are not. So, like, your only, your only, like, communication was your commitment, your public ceremony, and you think you'll be together when you're dead? Like, yeah. You'd be like, oh, <laughs> you're not really married she's not really real, I am so sorry. That is how a lot of people talk about their faith. Well, I made a promise way back. Um, Then I had a ceremony, public ceremony, did the baptism thing. And when we're dead, going to be together forever. Somebody needs to say, like, bless your heart. That is not Christianity. You are not dating Jesus. You're not married to Jesus. I'm not sure you've ever met Jesus. Somebody, somebody has sold you something less than a relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus said Christianity is remaining in him. And listen, we must not see salvation as a past agreement of a future promise. That is, not, like, that is an incomplete. I don't want to say it's wrong, but that is an incomplete view of salvation. And it will lead to large intermissions in your faith life. It'll lead you to be able to say... I said yes in fifth grade. My plan is at 95 when I check out to be with Jesus. In between, I don't need to do anything. That is a very incomplete version of salvation. Oh, it's a past promise of a future reality. No, no, no. It's way, way more than that. And we know that because we meet a man who tried to do this. His name was Jacob. His dad was Isaac. His grandpa was Abraham. And he was given in kind of his midlife crisis, he was given the blessing of God on his life. Uh, his, his grandpa was supposed to inherit a land, build a nation, a people connected to God that would tell the whole world about God. He was anointed. In his past, he was anointed. This blessing is yours. The land's yours. The family's yours. The spiritual promise is yours. The, the duty to reach the world is yours. And Jacob was like, yes. And then he left it all. And for 20 years, he didn't live in the land with the family, pursuing the things of God, representing God at all. And at the end of 20 years, his life was a mess. As a matter of fact, when we find him, he is running from somebody who's trying to kill him. And he runs into someone trying to kill him. And he literally says, I made a commitment to God in my past that I've not honored for one day. And now I feel like everything in my past wants to kill me and everything in my future is going to kill me. And he drops to his knees and he says, God, I have messed it all up. I've let this God thing be a promise in my past for my future, but I've never lived at one moment of any day, and I'm sorry. And he told his family, put away the foreign gods. We can't do that anymore. Purify yourselves. Change your clothes. We have to now make this religion thing a daily thing in our life. There's so many Christians who look like Jacob. Sometime in their past, they said yes to the promise of God. They hope in the future to inherit the gift of God, But in their present, it feels like everything from their past wants to kill them and everything they're walking into might kill them because they've not spent one day close to Jesus. Please hear me when I say salvation is more than a prayer in your past for an eternity in your future. It's a person that every day of your life you walk with and his name is Jesus. Like we have to understand what salvation is so that we can have assurance of our relationship with that salvation, that person named Jesus, so that we can have the intimacy 
that God desires for us to have. Because nobody wants to be in a relationship where every day we wonder if the other person is going to walk out. Nobody wants to be in a relationship where it's all about a past commitment and a future expression, but nothing right. Nobody wants to be in relationships like that, including Jesus, which is why the Holy Spirit starts beating out of your heart when you realize, I want to be a Christian. I think I'm a Christian. I just, I don't do much of the Jesus stuff. And when you're invited to come forward, you race to that again. You have to move beyond the decision to the day-to-day. That is authentic Christianity. And it's interesting because Jacob did it in Genesis chapter 35. But James in James chapter 4 gives us what I think in two verses is the summary to this entire message. James, Jesus' little brother writing to the church that has kind of been scattered spiritually a little bit. Kind of been away from God. Got the promise in the past. Got expectation in the future, but not much day to day. Says this to the church. Come near to God and he will come near to you. That's proximity. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That is posture. Realize everything in life without Jesus is just the grave. You cannot enjoy life unless you enjoy life with Jesus. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Person. Posture, person, proximity. My hope for those of you who are Jesus followers, who are like me at the age of 20, who when you hear, when did you get saved? You think, which time? Or you're ready for the next time. My hope is that you'll begin to see salvation less as a decision that you made and an action and a posture that you took, a person that you live in relationship with and a proximity that is like as close as you can possibly be. Because when you do that, John's going to teach us you can be assured of your salvation because these things will come out of you if Jesus is in you. You can also question your salvation. If these things never happen, it's probably because he's not there. Next six weeks, we'll take that journey together. If you can't be here in person, I hope that you'll watch online at least and kind of keep up with us as we study this book. Jesus said, if you're going to talk about me, think about me, remember me, the best way to do that is through the Lord's Supper. So as we close this service today, we're going to close by taking communion together as a congregation. Ushers, go ahead and step into your places all over the room. In just a second, I'm going to close in prayer, and then they're going to pass communion literally down every aisle. If you are a follower of Jesus in the room, we encourage you to take this communion. If you're not, we'd ask you to refrain until you've put your faith in Jesus. But stay with us and kind of watch this process, learn a little bit about it. But Jesus said, as you bring me into the center of focus, the best way to do that is through communion. As I pray and our team passes communion in just a minute, there's going to be some what I call communion contemplations on the screens. And what I'm going to ask you to do while the band just kind of softly plays is I'm going to ask you to answer the three questions on the screen. Just honestly for you and your faith walk today, I just want you as you hold your communion and get ready for all of us to take it together to answer these questions. I'll give you my answers to these questions before we take communion together. At least I will for the first two, the third one, still working through in privacy with the Lord. But my hope is that you would have a moment, not just learning, but figuring out what movement is needed to begin to have the posture of salvation, walk with the person of salvation, stay really, really close to Jesus. If you're here today, and maybe you've said a prayer in your past, but you know you're not saved because you've never taken the posture that everything in life is a grave without Jesus. You have zero relationship with Jesus. Like he's not a person you're hardly even aware of. And you not only don't stay close to him, you don't even know where he is. Then today, by faith, you need to put your belief in Jesus. You need to deny your sin, deny yourself. You need to depend on the finished work of Jesus. And you need to begin to just lean into him every day. If you've never done that, you can do that today by just acknowledging to the God of heaven what you already know to be true in your life. So would you just bow your heads and pray with me quickly before ushers pass communion. If you're here and according to this message, you don't think you don't think you're saved. You've said a prayer, but you've never done this. Then today tell Jesus you need him to be your savior. Not a memory in the past 
not a promise in the future, a savior today. Acknowledge your sin. Tell him that you realize that everything in life without him leads to a grave and you're sorry and you need his help. And then commit every day to trust him and to filter every experience in life through him. Jesus, you ask us when we brought you into the focus of our spiritual conversation to do it through the Lord's Supper, through communion. So as we do that today as a church, open our hearts and minds to these contemplations. Let us not just answer the questions, but be committed to take the movement required to take next steps from these questions. Holy Spirit, as we pass communion now, just speak to our hearts between now and when we take communion together as a church in a few minutes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, go ahead and pass those. Jay's just going to kind of worship over you as they pass the communion. Once everyone's been served, I'll come and lead us through communion together. Question number one, what do you do to stay close to Jesus and how can you do that more consistently this week? It's really clear to me the thing in my life that helps me feel the most intimate proximity to Jesus is my prayer life. Uh, Prayer time on my knees, prayer walks around my neighborhood. uh, And when I am busiest, I pray the least often. It's just a time management deal. But my time management problem is also, also a spiritual problem because it doesn't allow me to live with the intimacy and the joy and the trust that Jesus brings. So for me, number one, I'm praying this week I can have great prayer time with Jesus. Just because our church isn't meeting every day at 6 a.m. doesn't mean I don't need to get up and spend time in my prayer journal on my face before God. Number two, what in your life or who in your life causes you to leave Jesus behind often? I don't know about you. For some reason, all of my burdens in life 
are in caps lock and all of my blessings are in lowercase. I don't know why it is that I can have five blessings and five burdens and the burdens speak at volume 10 and the blessings speak at volume three. But that's my thing. And often Jesus gets left out of the glory he should receive in my life because the burdens shout louder than the blessings and I just can't say thank you or get close enough to him. So that's number two for me. And number three, where in your life do you need a posture of self-denial and spiritual dependence? I know the answer to that question. I'm not ready to share it publicly yet as God continues to do a deep work in my soul. But what you need to know is I'll have to stay really close to Jesus to make take that step and then stay there spiritually. Paul told the church at Corinth on the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. It would have been a wafer-thin bread like this called matzah, unleavened bread that the Jewish people ate on their Passover. And he broke it and he gave it all to all his disciples and said, eat this in remembrance of me because my body was broken for you. The posture of Christianity is that our bodies will never allow us to be perfect, but Jesus was. And we don't want to be punished for our sin, but we don't have to be because Jesus was. Jesus says, when you remember me, you have to reflect on what I did in my body. I was perfectly righteous, so you could be considered righteous. And I was totally punished. Listen, sin is not not a big deal because God doesn't care. Sin is not a big deal because it's already been punished. It's never ignored. It was punished in Jesus. And because of that, our bodies don't have to be punished for our sin. And our lives don't have to be perfect for our God. All because of Jesus. So as we take this wafer today, we remember that. God, thank you for your body that was broken for us. Thank you that your perfect body was broken so our broken bodies could be declared perfectly righteous before you. And Lord, thank you that while our lives deserve punishment for sin, we can allow our punishment for sin to be laid on the cross of Jesus instead. We acknowledge that and we thank you for that. Help us to live and rest in that belief, in that posture this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You can partake of the bread. It says, in the same way after dinner, he took the cup and he passed it around and said, this cup is the new covenant given for you in which my blood will cover and forgive your sins and my spirit will change you from the inside out. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone and Jesus said all it revealed is that you have a hard heart you can't change on your own. Jeremiah said the new covenant would take our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that would allow us to be connected to the God of the universe. Because of Jesus, we are forgiven. Because of Jesus, we can feel and hear and sense God in our life. If we will have a posture of repentance, if we will walk with the person of Jesus, and if we will stay close to him, the blood of Jesus not only covers our sin, but it allows our heart to have a heavenly heartbeat. So Jesus, thank you for replacing our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We acknowledge you've offered us that and that we've received it as we drink this today. And we thank you, Jesus, for it. In Jesus' name, amen.